there's going to be another side. We're going to come to the other side. We're going to come climbing up the riverbank, soaking wet after having been thrashed in that, in that rapid. And we're going to climb up on the cobbles. And if we've made it, take a deep breath and say, okay, that was bad. What did we learn? Uh, what did we learn? What did I learn? What did we learn? Uh, to value one another, uh, that we need to change the way we're living on the planet in connection with the rest of nature, um, that we need to treasure every second um, and treasure everyone, uh, and, and some other things that can come out of this. Hey, everybody. It's Chris Gerard. I'm the founder of Rome, and welcome to the Rome from Home podcast, co-hosted by my friend, Corey Richards. We're going to be talking to some of the greatest minds in adventure about how they are adjusting, adapting, and making the most of this unprecedented time around the COVID-19 crisis. We're going to be getting into the good and the bad and the ugly around social distancing and how we're all experiencing this time. So tune in each week, see who we're going to bring on, and we'll go from there. We are... So pleased today to have the privilege of being joined by David Quammen. Uh David is a very busy guy these days. Uh, he has been appearing all over the place as one of the, uh, I guess, foremost voices as it relates to um, infectious disease and what we're all going through. He's written 15 books, fiction early on, and a lot of nonfiction since then. Uh, he's published over 200 articles in National Geographic, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, Outside Magazine, among others. He's a three-time recipient of the National Magazine Award. And uh, his writing has been compared to William Faulkner by The New York Times, um, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Uh, he has a, uh, a well-known book right now um, that a lot of people are looking at that he actually wrote in 2014. <laughs> Man. Right there. The man. I love it. The man. The man. Uh, near my office looking down all the time. I love it. I love it. Um, Spillover, which he wrote in 2014, um, is really a work on the science history and human impacts of emerging diseases and especially viral diseases. Uh, his most recent book is Tangled Tree. Um, and he travels a ton, probably not so much right now, like yeah. all of us. Um, and usually to very wild and remote places. So it's, it's great to have him on today as a, an adventurer and also uh, a journalist and author and a good friend of our co-host, Corey Richards. So with that, I will kick it over to Corey, who has known David for years, and um, I will be here to sort of jump in and out from time to time, but I'm looking forward to hearing the conversation between you two. Thank you, CJ. So yeah, thanks, CJ. And and I just want to give some background to, to David and I. Um, the, I've worked on, I think, 12 articles for National Geographic now. And of those 12, uh, three have been authored by David Quammen. So, and one uh, required us being on a Russian cruise ship in the Russia, in the Barents Sea for 45 days chasing polar bears. So we've spent um, a good amount of time together. And and those were in my drinking days, so a good amount of time drinking together at times as well when there was nothing to, to take notes on or take photographs of. So we'll get back to some of those stories um, towards the end here. But I just wanted to say, David, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, our audience is uh, really comprised a lot of outdoor enthusiasts, people who um, 
you know, they live in the world of Jimmy Chin and Everest and Jeremy Jones and snowboarding and, and, um, and, but we're trying to give them some insight as to what the fuck is happening right now. And I couldn't think of a better person that I was connected to, uh, to give us some insight. So with that, I want to ask a very broad question, which is what the hell is happening? Uh, yeah, I mean, I know that's big. First of all, hello, brother. It's good yes, to see you. Yes, it's good to see you, too. We spent six weeks on a boat in the Russian Arctic together with a guy um, eating thawed-out Soviet cod for dinner every night and <laughs> drinking the vodka bottles down to the very last drop, and you are friends for life. Yeah, it cements things. Yeah. Yeah. So what's happening? Uh, what's happening is what I called in my book – spillover in 2012 the next big one um, okay so there, this does qualify as the nbo this, this is, is the next this, one this is the nbo yeah yeah okay. the next big one um this is what they were warning about um when i interviewed some some top disease scientists 10 and 12 years ago they were saying uh, i was asking it and i write about this at the end of the book uh what's the next big one going to look like and uh, the composite of what they said to me was, was essentially this. A composite of, of their various different warnings was, well, the next big one will be caused by a virus. Um, what kind of a virus? Well, a virus that comes from an animal. What kind of an animal? Where? Well, very possibly a bat. What kind of a virus? Well, one that has a capacity to evolve quickly. For instance, a coronavirus. Uh, where might that happen? Oh, might happen, for instance, in a, in a wet market where wild animals are being dealt, uh, sold along with uh, other kinds of food or sold as food along with, you know, seafood and other things. Uh, where might that be? Oh, hmm, maybe in China. Yeah. That was there. This, this, was, this was predictive. Or it was, I mean, uh, there was a lot of information that said this exact thing was going to happen. So the idea that this snuck up on us is more a conversation about that we just weren't ready for it versus that it, we didn't know it was going to happen. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The scientists knew this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen because I listened to the scientists. Other science writers knew it was going to happen. We were waving our hands, stamping our feet about this. Watch out, get ready for the next big one. Publishing books. Um, did, uh, did anybody hear us? Yes. Some people heard us. Did the policymakers hear us uh, and hear the scientists? Some of them did. Um, why wasn't uh, global preparedness um, brought up to a level that could deal with this current situation? That's the big mystery. Um, and I've been asking some of these uh, policy people and scientists that question myself over the last few weeks. And one of the answers that stands out is that um, it costs a lot of money to mount the preparations for a pandemic the excess public health facilities, the excess hospital beds, the excess ICUs, the excess ventilators, um, the monitoring, you know, the viral research in the, in the wild ecosystem costs a lot of money, costs billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. and, if, and for, for something that might happen during your term, your presidential term, the next four years or whatever, that might happen and might not happen. If it happens, you're prepared for it and you spend a few billion dollars. And if it doesn't happen, you spend a few billion dollars and... Um, and people are upset. People are, people are yeah. screaming at you that you wasted this money. So you're risk averse. You, you, you're 
averse to taking the risk of, of having that happen. Uh, and, I mean, and just, just to be clear, this is not the way I understand it. And I've, I've read spillover. It's a fabulous book. And one of the, I just want to give a little bit of background before I ask this question. One of the reasons David's writing is so good, this is for our audience, is because he makes science not boring. He takes, he takes the, 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 the scientific papers and he makes it almost a, a, a detective novel where you're following leads and, and it's uncovering things in a way that um, is illuminating and fun. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's an infinitely readable book that, I, that I've gone back to. So I just want to encourage people to go read it because... There's only so much we can cover in an hour, but I want to, I want to ask, you know, this is not something that's new. We've seen, um, we've seen infectious disease sort of on the rise over the past 30 years. Um, and, and coronaviruses are not new as I understand it. Am I right, right. in that? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. The SARS outbreak in 2003, that was a coronavirus. That's okay. one of the reasons, um, that the, the experts were telling me, watch out for coronaviruses, because they, they knew that they could jump into humans and spread. Matter of fact, one guy, and I'm writing a story about him right now myself uh, for The New Yorker. Um, one guy warned me in 2006 that, um, that the scary, he was a CDC guy at that point, and um, I asked him, he asked me, what, you know, you've interviewed a bunch of my people who work on scary viruses, what's, what's the scariest one that you've uh, you know, heard about or the most interesting one? Anyway, it came around to the fact that for him, the scariest and um, most fascinating, uh, most ominous one was SARS in 2003, and it was a coronavirus. So we knew that this was a potential problem, and there have been even scientists in the, in the meantime, including some very good scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China, uh, who've been going out and finding more coronaviruses in bats, living in caves, and saying, this one could be dangerous, this one could infect humans, we need to be aware of this one. And one of those that they pointed to in a paper published three years ago was this virus now, huh. that we have, mm. which is now SARS-CoV-2 is the official name. COVID-19 is the name of the disease. SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus. So SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV-2 or coronavirus COV-2 was discovered three years ago. Yes. That's, that's, I think that's interesting for people. And I, 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 so this is a zoonotic, am I correct? So the coronaviruses are zoonotic and what, explain that to people. Yeah, so they, okay. That's one of the terms, uh, as I say at the beginning of my book, Spillover, that you may as well get to know this little technical term because it's going to be important in the 21st century. And now yeah. Um, zoonotic or zoonotic, as some people say, uh, is a kind of, uh, it's an animal infection that's transmissible to humans. Could be a virus, could be a bacterium or some other microbe. Um, when it moves from its natural host, its animal host, into the first human that it infects, that moment is spillover. And if it causes yeah. disease in the human and it spreads to other humans, then that is a zoonotic disease. Okay. That's the ABCs and of this stuff. The ABCs of, what was it, EIDs? Was that yeah, EIDs. Yeah, the ABCs, the ABCs of EIDs. Of EIDs. Right. <laughs> um, 
And, and, and we've seen, I think for our audience, it's important to connect these dots. We've seen a rise in these kinds of diseases over the past 30 years. Why? Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me even rattle off some of the events. More than 30, close to 60 years, but there's been a drumbeat of these things. Machupo virus call it, causing Bolivian hemorrhagic fever. Bolivia, 1961. Marburg virus coming out of monkeys shipped up from Uganda to Germany for medical research, Marburg, 1967. Uh, Ebola first appears, 1976. Um, AIDS is recognized, HIV is recognized, 8081, although I tell the story in my book, it's a much older infection in humans than that. Um, and then, uh, and then some more. Uh, 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 Four Corners, Hantavirus, 1992, I think it was, 1994, Hendravirus in Australia, coming out of bats, getting into horses, and then, and then killing the people who take care of the horses. Uh, 1997, Bird Flu, Hong Kong. 2003, SARS, coming out of southern China. Uh, 2012, I think it was, um, MERS in Saudi Arabia, which was an, is another coronavirus. Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, da 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 da, Zika. They, so they keep coming, and now COVID 19, SARS CoV 2. Uh, so there's been a drumbeat of these things. Why are they happening more now? Well, first of all, they've always happened. Uh, there have always been pandemics uh, or plagues that have um, struck human populations badly, and usually the, they've been caused by bugs coming out of animals. Uh, the bubonic plague of the 14th century, the plague of Athens, described in Thucydides, others through the centuries. But more now, yes, more now, almost certainly, because there are more of us now, 7.7 billion humans on this planet, hungry, smart, restless, greedy, consuming a huge portion of the resources, quote-unquote resources, available in the rest of the natural world. drawing these animals closer to us as we're disrupting their ecosystems, as we're pulling them in for food or simply going into their habitats for timber or for mining. Uh, and they're all carrying viruses. They're all carrying viruses. Every wild animal in any forest you can find, you'll find some viruses in it. Uh, and those viruses, um, some of them have the potential to become human viruses. So more humans, more disruption, more con connectivity, more outbreaks more zoonotic diseases, more pandemics. So, I mean, I don't want to draw too clear of a line there, but you make, you, you, there's a quote in your book to the degree of, you know, the more you shake a tree, the more falls out of it. And, um, and, I, and the way I read that, and, I, and again, I want to be clear, but I'll just put it in a, a few days ago, I, I wrote a post and it might've been ill-advised. It was on Instagram. And I said, you know, imagine if the world would, would rally around climate change the same way we're rallying around coronavirus. And I think I misspoke a, maybe it was ill-timed, but B this, this seems to be uh, a component very much of climate change. Okay. Especially ecological yeah. disruption. Am I right in that, or am I am I mincing words? Or am I no, me, am I crossing? No, that's a, that's a really important question. And let me, or a couple of questions. Let me talk about it a little bit. First of all, I don't think humans are rallying around um, coronavirus. 
think coronavirus is rallying around humans. <laughs> Fair. Okay. You know, we are, our response, God forbid that our response to climate change be as bad as our response to this pandemic so far. That's, uh, but it is getting everybody's attention. It right. is all, all coronavirus all the time. That's why I've been doing, you know, interviews all day for the last seven weeks or so. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so you're absolutely right. It has, it has captured our attention and it has become a reality, a concern, a priority, even for the dunce who sits in the White House. I mean, excuse me, even for our president. <laughs> um, so, um, so we need that to happen with climate change too. Absolutely. But climate change is a slow motion thing with huge inexorable consequences. Uh, and it costs everybody some convenience in the present to deal with it. And it's not going to bite at anybody in the butt quite as soon and quite as dramatically as this thing will. Mm -hmm. So, so it's different. It's not surprising to me that it's that climate change is a harder sell in terms of making it a priority than this thing. How are they related? Some people are, uh, some people want to say, and I sympathize with this, but I don't agree with it. Some people want to say, oh, you see, so COVID-19, it's another consequence of climate change. It's not a consequence of climate change. It's a consequence of our direct interaction with wild animals. But it has the same fundamental causes that climate change does. They are parallel crises um, with, with uh, common causes. And those common causes, we've already mentioned them, are... 7.7 .7 billion humans on the planet, hungry for resources. They want to travel. We, we want to travel. We want to eat. We want to have children. Uh, we want to consume electronics. And every choice that we make um, brings the problem of climate change closer to crisis and, and brings these viruses closer to us. So, so these things are, are two branches from the, from the basic fundamental Causes. David, can you describe the mechanism um, by which I, there's a great quote in your book about, you know, if you knock down an old barn, the dust from yeah. that, you know, that sort of landing as a, as Corey was saying, shaking the virus out of the trees, how it goes from, from that moment and some of the terms that I think are not really understood certainly weren't before we read your book around the reproductive value around reservoir hosts like those because the mechanism i don't think is very well understood by very many people and i think it yeah. might be interesting yeah sure yep cj um first of all i use occasionally either of those metaphors but essentially it's a metaphor for the same thing you know cut down a tree and and viruses fly like dust or or think of a tropical forest as an old barn and if you knock it over with a bulldozer viruses will fly like dust. Um, that's a metaphor. Um, when we go into a tropical forest, uh, humans don't get infected because viruses are flying out like dust when they cut trees. Humans get infected because while they're cutting trees, they get hungry and then they need to eat. And the animals around them, the wild animals are what they, what they want to eat. So right. and it doesn't have to be people working in a tropical forest. It can be people, you know, shopping for it a pangolin in a Chinese market or people doing other things. I can talk about some of the things that all three of us have done that contribute to bringing viruses closer to humans. Help me remember to come back to that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but so here's the mechanism. Um, 
a human um, comes in contact with a wild animal, maybe it's a bat, maybe it's a, a monkey, um, the human might butcher it for food, might, uh, it might be a virus that's carried in the blood of this animal, human might cut himself on the hand or herself, get blood into that cut and get exposure to something like Ebola or HIV, the original HIV, that way. Or uh, they might be sweeping up dust in an old shed uh, that contained mice and mice, mouse urine. And uh, the mouse urine mixes with the dust and the mouse urine is carrying hantavirus. The person comes out there and sweeps up that shed, doesn't have to touch a mouse, breathes in the dust with the hantavirus, becomes infected with, with hanta. Okay. Uh, it can happen in these various ways. Uh, once it gets into the first human, if the virus can replicate in human cells and create an abundance of itself inside that human body, maybe in the respiratory tract, then it has the possibility of jumping to another human. The person coughs, little droplets of spittle come out. One of them lands on a doorknob. Somebody touches it, rubs her eye, gets infected with the same thing. Now the virus is, is beginning to succeed in human-to-human -human transmission. One of the most important things uh, that, uh, that is measured by the disease scientists who study these things, and I talk about this in the book, is the rate at which the first case infects secondary cases. Does the first case infect one other person or does the first case infect six other people? And one of the six other people, does that person infect five other people or only one other person? That's the basic reproduction number, or they call it R naught, R with a little zero hanging down low. Mm -hmm. uh, and they use that in their equations. What's the R naught? basic reproduction number. And if that number is greater than one, it means you've got, you've got a, an outbreak, you've got a, a thing that's spreading. If that number is like seven, then you've got a real problem. You've got an explosion and this thing is gonna get around uh, into your human population. Another thing that's really important is what they sometimes call silent spread or cryptic spread. And that means a person gets infected, the person starts shedding virus, maybe on her breath, without coughing badly, doesn't know she's infected, doesn't feel infected, and so goes to work and rides the subway and does all sorts of other things. She's a silent spreader and, sh and she's infecting other people without anybody knowing it yet. Mm -hmm. That's one of the characteristics of this virus that makes it so problematic, makes it so dangerous. So that's our not, and then there are some other things that, um, um, Case fatality rate is another number that they watch. They, it's not actually a rate because it's not a measurement in time, but it's like how many, how many deaths per hundred confirmed cases? Right. This is now running at two or three deaths in most parts of the world. So case fatality rate is two to three roughly, except in Italy. Last time I checked, it was 7.1 deaths wow. per hundred, which is, which is bad. SARS in 2003, it was almost 10%. And that's what one of the things that made SARS so scary. It had a high case fatality rate. It spread pretty quickly, but not as quickly and easily as this thing. What's so, the so R not on, uh, on, on um, this one? Um, it's, it's hard to measure at this point uh, because we, um, 
essentially we don't we don't know yet. We we haven't had the testing kits uh, to zero in on that and find out. Okay, here's you know here's case number one, and how many people did case number one infect? Um, they're just guessing at this point on the R not. All they know is that it's 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 well over one, um, and to some extent, you know, R not is something that um, you try to control by containment, by isolating cases. You try and bring that R naught, you know, it changes for a given virus. It's not inherent to the virus. The, the, the R naught will always be this number. The R naught is, is a measurement of the interaction between the virus uh, and the human um, people responding to it. So you try and squeeze that R naught down so it gets to one or below one so that every one case you have infects only one other person and you can isolate that person. Maybe one other, you get it down to less than one, it means that your public health measures are working and, and you've, you've, you've essentially got it beat. It will, it will stop if you get R naught underneath 1.0. So in, that, in a sense, in essence, that, that is flattening the curve or that's the vernacular yeah, that we're using. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is also social distancing, you know? Right. You're right. not hearing people talk about R naught, but um, the real point of social distancing is to bring down R naught. Okay. Bring, bring down that basic reproduction number so that, you know, every college kid who gets infected somewhere you know, on an airplane doesn't go to a club in Miami and spread it to, you know, 18 other people. Social so distancing. So you're looking at like a number of different components there. It's, it's how effective it is at reproduction. It's um, how quickly it sort of metastasizes in a way in your body to, to present with you so you can spread it or not spread it. Um, and then how deadly it is. And, and those th three things come together to make sort of in this way, the NBO, the next big one, the perfect storm. That's right. But there, so I also want to, you see a lot of people, and I've done this too. Well, in, two years ago, 60,000 people died from the flu. Um, f a half a million people die every year from malaria. Uh, why, why is this different? And why, why are those numbers and those comparisons not helpful right now? Right. Uh, it's understandable that people are asking those questions. Um, it's good skeptical thinking. Why? Why should we be more concerned now? Uh, in connection with flu, it's true that flu has always been killing more people than most folks were aware of. Mm -hmm. uh, um, 60,000 two years ago, particularly bad year, I think it usually in the U.S. kills between 10,000 and 40,000. Mm -hmm. Any of those people are, are old people, even older than me, with secondary <laughs> conditions. <laughs> Betsy reminds me, hey, dude, you're 72. You're, yeah. you're in that risk group. Uh, I said, I feel great, you know. You know don't die, David. Don't I, die. We need you. I, uh, I, I get a lot of exercise. You know, I'm in pretty good shape except for my knees. Yeah. Everything, my, everything is good except for my knees, which are shot. And she reminds me that, look, dude, you essentially have an, an immune system that is equivalent to a Chevrolet from the Truman years. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> You're like, thanks, Bats. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for putting yeah. me in my. <laughs> yeah. um, um, so, what were we talking about? Well, uh, is it just why are those comparisons? Oh, I mean, yeah, I think yeah, those they, comparisons. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, so take flu. Yeah, say it kills 60,000 people in a bad year in the U.S. Right. Um, it has a case fatality rate, that number that we've already talked about, of about 0.1. 
Okay. So this, if it's at two, it's 20 times the case fatality rate of flu. And okay. this thing looks like it's going to spread around the world every bit as effectively as flu. So that means whatever your number is for a bad year in flu, multiply it by 20. Okay. And see if that gets your attention. Right. Um, when it comes to malaria, yes, it kills about a half million people a year. It's a terrible disease. It's been a terrible disease forever. And, and we know that. And most of those half a million people who die of malaria are kids in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Um, uh, and that means that they don't get an, as much attention and concern as other people, sadly, unjustly. You've got mm -hmm. a few people like Bill Gates who are saying, let's deal with this. This is as big a problem as anything on the planet. God mm -hmm. bless Bill Gates. You know, he, he and his wife, Melinda, do great work, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, he gets this. He gets this stuff. So he's been working hard, I, as I understand it, the Gates Foundation, on the problem of, of malaria because, it, it, you know, it, it, we're, there's just too much of a tendency not to worry about it. Oh, it only kills, you know, half a million people, kids in South Sub-Saharan Africa. And people who live in Bozeman, Montana, like me, I know that I'm not going to get malaria. In right. Bozeman. I probably will get malaria the next time I go somewhere for National Geographic, unless I continue <laughs> taking my malaria prophylaxis. Yeah. Um, but people are safe. In most yeah. parts of the world, people are safe from malaria. So it's a horrible killer. We need to do something about it. In some ways, it's just as bad as this thing. But most people, you know, white people who live in um, northern latitudes especially, don't feel the pinch, don't feel the pain. So it's, 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 that's, a, that's more of a question of, yes, that kills half a million people every year. Um, and, and, and the reason it's sort of out of sight, out of mind is uh, inequality, essentially. Yes. Also, it's a very, very difficult disease to deal with. Why right. do we not have a malaria vaccine? Because it's a difficult disease. It's not caused well, by a virus. It's caused by, caused by this protozoan parasite with an unbelievably complicated, bizarre um, survivaling uh, survivalist um, life history, um, the uh, the plasmodium um, protozoan. Uh, so it's hard. It's hard to deal with it. Well, that that brings up a really good question, though, which is you brought up vaccine, and and from what I understand, and I hope you can shed some clarity on this, zoonotic or zoonotic diseases vaccines, or maybe that's not quite the right word, like every year we go to get a flu shot, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to protect you from the flu that emerges that year. And, and, and is that the case with coronavirus? I mean, there's a lot of hope for vaccine, but what does that actually mean in this context? Well, the hope for a vaccine is very real and, and very important and, and legitimate. We do hope that we will have a vaccine for this virus. Um, it doesn't evolve as fast as influenza viruses do. Mm -hmm. It evolves faster than most other kinds of viruses, I think, but not as fast as flu. Nothing evolves as fast as, as flu. So there's a new influenza every year coming out of a wild aquatic bird somewhere in the, on the planet, getting into uh, humans probably by way of domestic birds, chickens and ducks. And mm -hmm. you think of it as coming, people think of it as coming out of Southeast Asia every year. Is that because that's... A, a font of flu viruses? No, that's because it's a place where people live closely with their chickens and ducks. Um, so a wild bird flies over, shits in the rice paddy, 
the ducks in the, go out and dabble in it, a duck picks it up, the duck goes home, where does the duck live? The duck lives under the people's house. Um, so that's why flus tend to begin anew there, but sometimes they begin in other places. They can begin in the U.S. too, mm-hmm. um, they, but they're different each year, um, and so we need a different flu vaccine each year. The people who, who make the decisions and probably in December or January, they're scanning a bunch of different flus. They, they see their genomes. They know exactly there's this kind of flu that's emerged. And there's this kind of flu. There's this kind of flu. This one looks like the dangerous one for humans. So let's go and create a vaccine and have that vaccine ready by October when the flu season starts in the Northern hemisphere. That's okay. what happens with flu. This virus, if we can get a vaccine uh, soon, um, then that vaccine, I gather from what I'm reading uh, from the experts, I'm not an expert on any of this, um, uh, this virus is evolving slowly enough that if we get a vaccine, it should be good for at least a few years, maybe longer than that. Okay. Um, and and it, it would make a huge difference in being able to control this thing if we can get a vaccine soon. And then there's a separate um, uh, matter of, of therapies, you know, treatments, antiviral treatments to be distinguished from um, from vaccines. Vaccines prevent the virus from taking hold as an infection um, in you, mm-hmm. and the therapies help to deal with it once it has taken hold. Okay. And and there are some, like, I was even reading there's a mix of a therapy. It's it's one of the, and I don't, I, I just read an article. It's not, it was in the Wall Street Journal. Um, I don't want to put false hope in anybody's brain, but it was talking about mixing azithromycin or a Z-pack with these, some of these animalarial drugs. And it said that there was a, um, a compounding effect that seemed to, to have a, 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 um, a positive impact on, on the virus after six days. Um, yeah, that's possible. I mean, you and I have uh, taken chloroquine. Yeah. It's horrible. It's horrible. And, and it, it, the, they generally don't use it anymore. Now we use what's, uh, uh, um, I can't remember the name of it. It begins with an M, Maleron. Yeah. Now they yeah. recommend Maleron, not chloroquine. So we used to take chloroquine when we go to, to tropical areas to, to protect us against mala- uh, malaria. Malaria. Yeah. Uh, now they're discovering that chloroquine, technically hydri- hydri- hydrochloroquine, hydrox- hydroxychloroquine, um, the, uh, shows the possibility of some effectiveness against this virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's still, I think, a lot of uncertainty about that, whether it's likely to cause more good than harm. Uh, and then what you're talking about is mixing that with some other kind of, uh, I don't know what. It was um, zith- azithromycin. It's a, it's a chest infection. It's what people give for bacterial lung yeah, infections. Okay. So it's an antibiotic. Yeah. yeah. So the reason they would mix those probably was beca- is because there's always a danger if, um, if you've got a bad viral infection that uh, you can have a secondary bacterial infection. Mm-hmm. And the 1918 uh, flu pandemic, which killed 50 million or more people around mm-hmm. the world right after World War I, it is suspected that the reason that killed 50 million people is not just because that was such a badass virus, but because there were a lot of secondary bacterial infections. One, one, strain, one kind of bacteria in particular, I can't remember which one it was, that was helping to kill people off. And there were no antibiotics then. You know, penicillin right. had not yet been discovered. So... Um, the Wall Street Journal thing, I didn't see that article, but it suggests combining the possible helpfulness of chloroquine, which is originally an anti-malarial drug, but seems for some reason 
to maybe act against this virus, combining that with an antibiotic that would deal with secondary infections and throwing that cocktail into people and see what happens. How long is it going to take for the FDA to approve that? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's, I mean, what that kind of, that brings up another issue is there, there seems to be, as there always is in, in pandemics and panic, um, there seems to be a lot of misinformation and I don't think it's, I don't think it's malicious. I don't think it's, I don't think it's meant to, to lead people astray. People want to produce hope. Um, but they also, people want to harp on the fear because drama drives, you know, eyeballs on things. So my question is what's important to be paying attention to right now? And what are the red herrings that are just causing people to lose their shit and buy too much toilet paper? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. The hoarding of toilet paper. Right. Um, you know, I've been, I've been rereading the plague by Albert Camus, the great novel about pandemic, about plague, uh, published in 1947. And there's at one point in that novel, um, where one character says to another, Oh, there's a guy on my street. Uh, he's a grocer. And he was, he was starting to hoard certain foodstuffs with the idea that he could sell them later. Uh, because people were starting to panic. Um, and he said, yep. And uh, when the ambulance man came to take him away, he had 11 cans of meat under his bed. Yeah, right, right. And then he died in the hospital. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and the, 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 the character then says, um, there's no money in plague. There's no money in plague. That's it, an interesting. That might or might not be true. Um, anyway. For Jeff Bezos there is, but yeah, right. maybe Hamill. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, the I mean, what's the bullshit? What, what are, because people are freaking out about, I think, non, non-essential or inconsequential yeah. information. So, yeah. you know, what, but sort of this question about, well, how worried should I be about this seems to be kind of bullshit. What should people actually be paying attention to? Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Uh, people ask me, how worried should I be? And my, uh, or they say, are we all going to die? <laughs> and when they ask that, I say, yeah. Yeah, yeah we are. We're all going to die. <laughs> uh, probably a lot of us not from this coronavirus, though. Yeah. Uh, so how worried should we be? Mm, uh, worry is useless. Yeah. Worry serves no purpose. Preparation serves a purpose. Carefulness serves a purpose. Uh, organized response serves a purpose. So you should be just worried enough to start thinking about what the concrete things are you need to do, and then you can stop worrying. Um, social distancing, pay attention. Pay attention to what Tony Fauci is saying <laughs> when he wrestles the microphone away from Trump. Yeah. This guy is good. This guy is the real deal. He's yeah. been in, in his role for 30 years. Before he ever became famous on TV, I and a lot of other people would have told you that, okay, Tony Fauci is one of the best guys that you can trust on this whole thing before the press conferences. And, mm -hmm. and he walks this line where he, you know, he's, he's honest, he's candid, he's got a Brooklyn accent. People just trust him. Um, and, and yet he doesn't contradict Trump quite obviously enough to get fired. And at this right. point, at this point, I don't think, you know, Trump wants to fire him because he's he's basking in his reflected glow. Anyway, so what should you do? Well, do listen to Tony Fauci, 
And if he says that um, we need to continue social distancing for another five weeks, um, you can't go back to school, you can't go back to work yet, um, you need to live on the things in the freezer for a while, you can't go to the grocery store every time you need a bottle of milk, um, you need to social distance, uh, you know, don't go, don't go to the ski hill and skin up and come down and then sit in the parking lot of Bridger Bowl drinking beer with your buddies. No, don't do that anymore. That's still going on, apparently, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so social distancing, take it seriously. Um, hoarding toilet paper, mm, not a particularly smart idea. Um, you know, you have books and newspapers that can serve purposes. <laughs> it it um, seems like, David, there's a, I, I just saw an article in the <laughs> Times by uh, Donald uh, McNeil Jr. McNeil? Yeah, that, that uh, there's some evidence that, the, that it's really working right now. I mean, that they're, they're sort of heat mapping the country and outside of Louisiana, uh, New Mexico, and actually Southern Colorado, and um, that they're starting to see that the social distancing is really is, is really taking effect. Um, so that's, that's like some good news. Yeah. Right? That, that you know, news. Yeah. And that people can feel it because I think that, you know, they keep saying like Fauci keeps saying, you're not going to, that's the whole thing about doing it right is that you'll feel like you're overreacting until it's apparent that you're doing exactly what you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And, and then the next thing that we need to be careful about, I haven't seen that Don McNeil story yet, but I I've heard that, same trend being registered. Um, we need to be careful that once we get reversals, once the numbers of infected and maybe even the numbers of dead start to go down in terms of the rate per day or per week, we need not to um, release the, um, the, t the pressure uh, and uh, pull down the regulations and the, the recommendations too quickly and say, okay, great, we're beating it, social distancing is over. Because then, and I think Fauci has said this, that we're liable to get the second wave. Mm -hmm. uh, and second wave could be as bad as the first wave. Um, so um, we need to be prepared. People need to think that not only do you, do you need to do social distancing, you need to really be ready to, be, to hang out and be tough for the long term. This is not going to be over in two weeks. Mm -hmm. It's going to be unimaginable for us how much it changes our lives. And when we get the numbers down, then we have to take measures to keep them down. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have a vaccine by the time the numbers go down, then we need to keep doing some form of social distancing and all these other measures. So essentially, we have to starve out, and, and it talks a little bit about this and spill over. We have to starve out the um, readily available hosts for the virus. And that's ultimately what this is all about is, is because we are a healthy population, healthy enough for this virus to thrive in, we have to separate ourselves so that um, it can no longer thrive. And once we do that, that this doesn't, I mean, the virus will still have to pass through us, but it gives us time to not overwhelm everything and hopefully find a vaccine as the that's way, right. okay. That's right, and that's, um, that's flattening the curve, which means um, maybe you don't reduce the number of people, the ultimately infected, or the case fatality rate, but you slow it down, you flatten mm -hmm. the curve so that your healthcare systems, your hospitals, and your, your, your health, medical uh, people don't get overwhelmed the way Northern Italy has gotten overwhelmed, mm -hmm. and, and where they now have a case fatality rate, not of two or three, but of about seven.
So what, what are we, I mean, you've done this interview and I'm sure this interview feels reasonably identical to so many others that you've done. And, no, nothing with, nothing with you, Corey, is identical to anything. <laughs> it's, well, I'll take that. I'm not sure it's good, but I'll take it. Um, what, what are, what are, what am I, what is, what are we missing? What's the question that you're not getting asked? that should be getting asked? Like what's this, is there a piece of information that you just, aside from listen to, listen to Dr. Fauci, I mean, which I totally agree with, but is there, is there another piece of advice or something else that I just don't have the brain capacity or the knowledge to understand and I'm not asking? What am I there missing? Is, there is something and I've talked about it a little, but I haven't talked about it very much. Um, and it's what I alluded to before when I said, let's come back to, talking about what you and I and CJ um, contribute to this problem. Okay. Love that. Okay. Phones, technology, Phones, this computer. Computers. Yeah. Tantalum capacitors. Tantalum capacitors are necessary for this and for this computer. And we are consumers of them. Where do tantalum capacitors come from? Congo. Congo. Bingo. Bingo, yeah. Congo. Uh, so you already know this, but I'll 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 talk it out for for your listeners. Yes, please do. Yeah. Tantalum capacitors are made from a, a, a blackish mineral called coltan. Uh, where does coltan come from? It comes from mines in just a few places around the world. One area that it comes from is southeastern Democratic Republic of Congo, where there are mines in the forest. In the I forget the name of it. The Itumbwe National Reserve mm -hmm. and uh, the Kahuzi Biega National Park. Mm -hmm. Areas of rich biological diversity, forest, mm -hmm. lowland, um, filled with gorillas, eastern lowland gorillas, um, some elephant, um, a lot of different kinds of rodents, bats, uh, porcupines, all of them carrying viruses. Mm -hmm. So we send those miners in there to get coltan for our consumer electronics. What do those miners eat? Bushmeat. Well, the that's there. Bushmeat. Yeah. Yeah. So our consumer choices are sending human beings into forest areas in southeastern Congo to mine coltan in a place where um, they're not going to have 11 cans of meat under the bed. They're going to eat whatever um, the guy designated to feed them each day brings in from the forest. He's going to bring in monkeys and porcupines and dikers, maybe sometimes a bat. And he is going to deliver to them uh, wild animal meat, which is what they survive on. And that's going to bring them closer into contact with viruses. So the next one might not come from a wet market in China. It might easily come from a coltan mine in southeastern Congo. Mm. And if it does, it's not going to be Chinese eating habits that were ultimately responsible for it. It's going to be you and I and CJ and anybody else who's listening who has a cell phone or a laptop. That's interesting. I, I, and it's, and it's, I think it's confronting. I think it's helpful. Um, I mean, it's, I, you know, in some ways it's that it, it raises the question of what's the solution to that. And I think, um, I don't, I don't know the answer. Uh, I don't know I, the answer either, but um, it's just, I guess it's awareness. It's awareness, it's expectations and scale. It's the scale of the demands that we make for comfort, 
and consumption and things and travel opportunities liberties in in our lives as you know as middle class people that have the luxury of traveling around and eating well it's the choices we make how many kids that we have if we have kids all of these choices down the road 10 years 20 years 50 years from now um, are going to going to have effects incremental effects if we change if we dial back on some of that on our expectations uh, then we will be able to change it incrementally um, we need to person and this is what i'm talking about coltan we need to personalize this and and um and own this problem and not um externalize it and say this is something that weird people in china do because cause because they eat bats right we own a piece of this um and uh and um you know we need to remember that mm. there's so, a connectedness there's a deep connectedness around all of it yeah absolutely well, and and it's it's interesting too that i mean that brings up a whole host of other issues briefly you know coltan mines um tantalum it 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 plays off there's a, a great book called the looting machine that basically explores how we uh as countries of comfort um, thrive on keeping other nations in conflict because it keeps things like tantalum uh or, or coltan cheap um, and, and so it, it behooves us to, to make sure that we are feeding both sides of any conflict where there are resources with weapons to continue to kill each other because that actually makes it easier for us to get things out at a much, at a cut rate cost, yeah, yeah. for example. The um, looting Machine, I just wrote it down. Yeah, it's, it's a fabulous book. Um, yeah. and, and, um, and the way we think about these things, I mean, people have a tendency to say, oh, it's the big corporations. It's mm -hmm. greed. It's greed. I hate the word greed because it's so self-righteous. Um, greed is a word that people use for other people's wants. Right. You never talk about your own greed. You say, I have greed for a cell phone. No, I want a cell phone. Yeah. So greed really is a way of hypnotizing yourself to believe that it's not your responsibility. It's, it's, uh, that's, a, that's a really good point. We, we point to the big corporations, but it ultimately does come down to how we vote with our own wallets and where we choose to spend our money. Um, I, I, I want to, because we are an adventure crowd here and you have an adventure background. Um, the other day- you know, Did you know I just published a golf article in Outside? Yeah, <laughs> I did not know that I saw that. <laughs> but I can't wait to read it now. It's, a, it's an article about how after you've done the whitewater kayaking, after you've done the telemark skiing, after you've done all this other stuff, this adventurous stuff, yeah. after you've done the 10 years of city league ice hockey, yes. and you're old and beat up like me and your knees are shot, <laughs> pick up golf. Pick up golf. Take I love it. it. Well, next time I'm there, we'll go play. Next time I'm in Bozeman, we'll go play around. Okay, you can good. beat me. Um, <laughs> But I, I, want, I want to get your, because you're a specialist, uh, a lot of people in our community are like, yeah, I'm going to go out for a backcountry ski. You mentioned it. Um, somebody in Ophir the other day uh, got caught in an avalanche or outside Ophir. And, um, you know, they're experienced professional people. They had all the, they, they, were, they were equipped. And a lot of people that are going out aren't equipped. All of a sudden, they get caught in an avalanche. He's in an ICU bed, and 30 people who otherwise wouldn't have been uh, in contact are now crowded around each other. What's the importance of 
fucking laying off and just, <laughs> and not having to be rad right now. I just, you know, Corey, you've, you've made that point. I agree with you a hundred percent, but I can't <laughs> say it any better than you just said. it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Um, and what is, what are you doing? Like what's, what's uh, pandemic life look like for you right now? I mean, what are you doing? Okay. Um, well, um, you know, you know the neighborhood, you know yeah. our house. Betsy and I live in a, in a nice house in a neighborhood on the south side of Bozeman, halfway between Main Street and the university. Um, we live in this house with our two dogs, a cat, and Python Boots, who is in the neighborhood <laughs> over there. <laughs> Boots! Um, and it's just us. Um, her family, her father and stepmother, live in Bozeman, and uh, her sister, and our nieces and our brother-in-law live in Bozeman also. Uh, and usually we would have Sunday dinners every week with them. Instead, we have Skype on Sunday, cocktail hour Skype with them. We're not even seeing them. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't driven a car in about 10 days. Um, I haven't been within six feet of a person besides Betsy in about, I think, three weeks. Okay. Um, I go for walks with the dogs or on my own uh, in the Bozeman. Not very strenuous walks because my, and my knees literally are shot. I'm bone to bone and I'm, I, I was scheduled for, for my first knee replacement on April 14th, but that ain't gonna happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so I walk and, um, and if I see somebody, a neighbor or a friend or somebody I don't know on the, uh, coming toward me on the sidewalk, I literally cross the street so I don't pass on the sidewalk. But then I make sure that I make eye contact with that person. I don't put my head down. Oh, there's a person, you know, he's probably carrying COVID. No, I, I pass on the other side of the street and then I try and make eye contact and I wave, hey, hi, how are you doing? You okay, how are you doing? And stranger, strangers wave back, hi, how are you doing? Okay, we're good, we're spacing out. Um, and I work from home because when I'm not traveling somewhere in the Russian Arctic with you or in um, the Congo with, um, you know, some other photographer partner. Um, I always work from home. So I'm working yeah. from home, doing a lot of interviews and trying to do some new research and thinking about COVID-19 myself for a couple of things that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to write. Yeah. And, the, and the Betsy, Betsy's book has come out. Um, oh, fabulous. Her book on American Zion about Cliven Bundy and, um, and the, the, fundamentalist Mormon revolt against public lands in the West. Oh, wow. And, uh, she was going to be doing a book tour all around the West. And of course that's gone, except she found a workaround and she said, let's, I'll do some um, book tour events online, Zoom events. And, uh, and then she said, well, your book is getting a lot of attention now. So let's do a couple of, let's do some book chats together. So she and I were doing another one tonight on Zoom, everybody. It's uh, through Weller's Books in Salt Lake City. I don't know what the URL or any of the, you know, fancy code numbers is for it, for, but it's going to be on Zoom at 6 p.m. live. Come and join us if you want to talk about books, except we're taping this, aren't we? Never mind. Well, we're taping it, but, but we, can, we can link to that because that'll be saved and people can, can and go check it out. Yeah, there will be more of these, but we're doing one tonight and she and I will talk about our books and where they, where they overlap. And I think we've got 400 people who signed up for it already. Um, Fabulous. And, well, and you know, you can't get 400 people into the country bookshelf in Bozeman. No, so, you can't. Um, so life, life goes on. You just find new things. I mean, God bless, God bless Zoom. God yeah. Bless Skype. 
<laughs> these things have never been more valuable. The other thing um, that I, I meant to say is that the social distancing thing, you know, the reason I wave to the guy across the street is because I really believe that we have to make sure that social distancing does not entail emotional distancing. Mm-hmm. We need to stay connected. We need to stay connected to not just to our friends, like, you know, getting to see you, um, but um, just neighbors, community members, the world. Uh, I'm doing um, some interviews of some, some Skype and some Zoom um, more than ever with, um, uh, with students, with classes and universities. And one, I'm doing a, a Zoom with a, a high school biology class in New Jersey next week, I think. I'm doing a couple with, for instance, MIT writing students, journalism students at the University of Montana through Zoom. Uh, I'm, the professors are at home, the, the students are all at home, and I'm at home. And it's a way of staying not just emotionally connected, but intellectually connected. That, that, that actually, this is a good, uh, uh, I think a good place to, to kind of wind down here and start to, to wrap it up. What are, what's the hopeful side of this? I mean, this is a, this is a massive world event, but, yeah. but there is hope th- that is emerging from this. And I think you're, 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 you're getting at it and I don't know what it is. I'm just curious to get your thoughts yeah. about it and no, CJ I too. Right. Uh, I think that's, um, it's sort of what Camus novel, The Plague is about. It's about in times of extreme adversity, for instance, a plague, it brings out the worst in some people and the best in some people. And we are challenged to let it bring out the best in us in terms of staying connected, staying helpful to our community insofar as we can, um, staying tough and cheerful and still being able to laugh and knowing that um, a number of us are gonna get very sick and a number of us are gonna die. We already know that it's come to that point, Um, but um, there's gonna be another side. We're gonna come to the other side. We're gonna come climbing up the riverbank, soaking wet after having been (laughs) thrashed in that in that rapid and we're going to climb up on the cobbles and if we've made it take a deep breath and say okay that was bad what did Uh, we learn what did we learn what did i learn what did we learn uh to value one another uh that we need to change the way we're living on the planet in connection with the rest of nature um that we need to treasure every second um and treasure everyone uh, and and some other things that can come out of this, uh, and, and I'm hope that I'm hopeful that you know the best thing that could come out of this is some sort of a major reset in terms of the way we think, not just about pandemic preparedness, but our human relationship with the natural world, our relationship from one country to another. That's one of the lessons of this. That you know you can't you can't build a wall that'll keep virus out. Um, mm-hmm. You need you need to build a build some sort of a handshake. That'll help you deal with virus, you know, and if it's in China, it's going to be in the U.S. And if it's in the U.S. and China, it's going to be in Italy. We have to realize that uh, and be ready for dealing with it um, connectedly together. Amazing. Corey, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much, David, for your time today. Uh, This was massively educational for us and and hopefully for our audience as well and we'd love to have you back on uh you know on the other side of that riverbank and yeah maybe talk about some you know adventures and uh more whimsical uh moments in the arctic or or wherever else you guys have spent time 
Um, but, uh, this was, this was fantastic for, for the day. So, um, thank thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, David. Thank you, Corey, brother. I love you lots. Give love my best to Betsy and the dogs. I will do that. And of course, and boots. And of course, boots. <laughs> All right. All right. Take care. Ciao. See ya. Thanks, David. Yeah.